0: Uh, The youth group, you're going to stay with us today. Uh, Pastor Peter got sick, so Pastor Jimmy, uh, amazing pastor, is always willing to fill in. He jumped in for him. And so the youth group, uh, you're going to be with us today. And so we're glad you guys are staying here. I love to see you guys. Um, I I just want to highlight, there's so many good things going on. Uh, You know, the the guys who do the ushering every single week, like, that's so so cool. Faithfulness every single week, and I just want to thank them for that. There's guys in the sound booth back there who set up and that kind of stuff, like... They, n- they don't never get to be noticed, you know, it's not like a prestigious job, you know, to, the, to bring out the offering thing, or to, to be in the back and get yelled at if you're James, you know, next slide, James, where's the video, James? Like, sometimes it's, uh, it's tough, uh, but they're so faithful, and I'm so blessed by them, and so thank you, uh, everyone who's doing the little things to make uh, all this possible, we're so blessed by it. Uh, this week, uh, and I also wanted to say, uh, thank you guys for, this is two weeks old, I, I meant to say it last week, but I forgot, but sincerely thank you for hosting uh, the Allsback missionary team that was down here, there were about 20 of them, and uh, some of you all came out and made breakfast for them, and, and, and we generously donated money for them. Like, that was just such a powerful moment, and I know it really moved uh, uh, Neil and his wife Darcy, and I want to thank you guys for that. Thank you for being willing to open your heart and our church and, and your wallets even to help them out. It was, it was a tremendous blessing uh, for them. They were absolutely over the moon about it, and it's totally stoked by, by our church's love for them, and so just want to thank you guys. That, that was such a good job. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like, it's so amazing when, when our church steps up to each and everything, even the small things. And, and so what a blessing to see that. <clears throat> La, uh, uh, this week, we're going to continue in our awe series. Last week, we ventured into creation to see uh, uh, God's wonder and to help restore our like, amazement by his wonder as we were looking into creation. This week, we're going to see God's mighty hand in history. Both the huge canopy of human history and the smaller umbrella of our own personal histories. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Just just the, the history of the world and the history of our lives. And we're going to see if by looking at history, it can restore some of our like awe about God. Because that's what this series is all about. We, some of us, become very professional in our Christianity. We've been here. We've heard that. We've done that. We've been Christians for a long time. I was counting it up last night. I've been a Christian for 27 years. I've been now longer a Christian than I wasn't a Christian. And so some of us, sometimes we get uh, sort of come routine, di- been there, done that. And so I, I want us to, to pause. The whole point of this four weeks is for us to just pause and just to say, God, I want to I be back with you. I want to be amazed again by you, God. I want to find awe in you. I want to be exasperated by how amazing you are. And so I hope that that's doing that in the next uh, couple of weeks. And so today we're going to look at how human history does that. Uh, we're going to look at history of God in in our world. And the reason that we can look at history to find awe is because of this idea of sovereignty that we find in the Bible. And we can be blown away by God's awesomeness because of sovereignty. Sovereignty just means to be in control of something. And the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. He's actually in control of all things. And so because of that, we can look into history and see his fingerprints all over it. But there's a question that comes when we say that God is in control of all things. We want to ask the question, at what level does he actually do this? Like, like when we say God is sovereign over the planet or, or God's in control of things, what do we mean by that? Because also, oftentimes you'll hear people say something like, uh, oh, yeah, it's all part of God's plan, right? Something happens and like, oh, god, God's god got it under control or, or, you know, everything happens for a purpose or a reason. Anyone's heard it, these kind of phrases? So those are phrases for all people trying to say, like, God's in control or God's sovereign over stuff. But at what level is it? And so it's almost like a continuum. On one far side of the continuum is are we just like pawns on a chessboard? Like, does God dictate every single movement of us? Does he, does he, like, is he literally like, oh, he did that, and now God's in control, and I blink twice right now? Normally I only would have blinked once, but it was twice. You I, I mean, can't see it's too far. But is God really dictating each other? He's in control of the blinks and the beats of my heart and the movements of my blood vessels. Is God going to, ooh, he made me do that with these things right here? That's like, oh, man, God is in control of all this kind of stuff. Is he really that kind of sort of micromanager where every muscle, every word uttered every blink of the eye? Is God doing it? I, so this far into the spectrum, I, I have a little bit of a problem with that because then if, if rape happens or murder or killing, then God did those things too. So I think that, that there's a problem if God's in sort of every micromanaging detail of it. I think that it, it does become, he, he may become the author of evil if we go too far on one extreme. But did God just simply like start the world and let the evolutionary process begin and he's not involved at all? Because if that's the case, then, then what is he really sovereign over? What is he really in control of? Or, or is God more sovereign in the medieval king kind of way? And this is, I'll, I'll tell you ahead of time, this is where I kind of lean. So like a medieval ki- king, he can come into your town and he could go into your house and he could take your chicken if he wants, right? He's the king. <laughs> He's allowed to do that. He's sovereign over the land; He's in control of all the land. Now, does the king go in and steal every person's chicken? Like, No, not normally, right? But, but he has the right or the control to be able to do so. And, and he can command people. He can tell them, hey, you go to war, you go do this kind of thing. And so, he, so a king is in control, or he is sovereign over his own land. But people within that kingdom, they make decisions, and, and, and they have freedom within the system created to make those kind of decisions. And this is kind of where I lean in terms of God's sovereignty. I think God is sovereign. The Bible is clear about that, that God is in control. But at what level? Is he at the micromanaging every single moment level? Or is he at the hands-off not at all, sort of I just am in control of making sure the system works? Or is it somewhere in between? And I find in my Christian life and in theology, I often m- find myself looking at two extremes. And then the answer tends to be in the middle. And I think that's true probably in most areas of our lives, right? There's an extreme position, an extreme position, and really the probably answer is right in the middle of it. And so this one, I think that that, that's sort of where it lands. But the idea of of sovereignty, And I think it's important because because God is sovereign or because God is c- in control, then we can look for God's fingerprints in history because we think he's actually involved in human history. Does that make sense? Why, boy, looking at history may cause us to go like, God, you are amazing, because I can look back through history and see if God has actually been doing any work in history. I can look through human history and say like, well, God, have you been active? Is there something about what's going on that I can say like, whoa? oh, check those kind of things out. I actually was looking through the Bible to help define this idea of sovereignty uh, and, and, and like its implications for history. And I, and I found a really cool definition. I was surprised at the source of the definition. It didn't come from the Apostle Paul or any of the great New Testament thinkers. Nor was it found in the profound writings of the priests and the prophets of the Old Testament. The clearest definition of God's sovereignty actually comes from a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, whether he becomes a believer or not is a a fantastic discovery story. I'd invite you to read the book of Daniel. And I would say it, it looks like he does become a believer. But that's neither here nor there for this. Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement about God's sovereignty. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of this kingdom called Babylon. So here we, we don't find a begrudging acknowledgement of God's control, but an expression of worship and praise, a declaration that God truly is over all things at all times. So here's what, here's what Nebuchadnezzar concludes after interacting with God. God takes a whole bunch of stuff away from him. He has all these kind of problems. He has this vision. That vision kind of comes true. And at the end of it, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, at the end of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and I praised and I honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Dominion is like an area of control. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this example of, of sovereignty says that God, God is in control for every single generation. And when he decides to do something, it gets done. But that doesn't say that he's deciding all things. But when he does, it actually absolutely happens. So it seems to me God doesn't simply start the world and step away from it. You know, like a top, he doesn't just spin it and the top just goes. But rather God is involved. He doesn't micromanage and control every movement, but when God steps in, it's obvious and it's clear, and we can look for uh, God's fingerprints in history. Since he's in control, we can look for and find the working of God in and throughout human history. We can join Nebuchadnezzar in this conclusion that God is truly amazing. He's awe-inspiring, and our wonder can be refreshed. God's working was written, it was written down a long time ago in this history book, the history book we call the Bible. Uh, the Bible is a book that's all actually about God. It's God's story. It, as opposed to being like a manual for you, the Bible is not a manual for you. It's, not, its primary purpose is not you. Its primary purpose is God. It's to talk about God and what God has been doing. And it does happen to be quite helpful. <laughs> it is an amazing historical book about do- God, and, and it is interacts with our lives and it's critically important for our lives but the bible isn't just about you the bible is actually about god it records man turning away from god and god's redemption process and god's perfection process the bible records god using incredibly flawed people to bring about the things that he desires would you join me in like a, a semi-brief walk through the Bible? I'm just going to walk through it. And this is part of like our, our looking at history to, to see our, our awe of God. And I'm going to have some pictures that will help us walk through it a little bit here. And so uh, it, it's semi-brief, you know, how pastors get. We'll see. Okay, so uh, we're going to walk through a couple of slides. So here's the first slide. So, we saw this last week that God speaks things into existence. And so, here comes the universe. Boom. He, God speaks, and then God creates light, and God creates water, and animals, and people. And God looks at all that kind of stuff, and He said, It's really good. And God is looking at that. And so, here, this slide, we see that, that in the beginning, God. And then God creates things, and he creates all the things that we can see out of creation. We were looking at that last week, and that like brings us to this place of wonder. And then uh, we see that God creates human beings, and he creates human beings with the ability to say yes or no to him, and the human beings decide to say no to God. And we know that Adam and Eve decide to say no, thank you, God. We're not going to obey you. We're going to, in fact, disobey, and we're going to eat of this fruit. The only thing that you told us on the entire planet we can't do That's the thing we're going to do, God, (laughs) right? And so uh, uh, we see that uh, man sins against God. This is the fallenness. This happens in like the the third chapter of the Bible. Like you, you just begin the thing, you know, it's like boom, 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 and the big problem arises right away. And the rest of your Bible is all about fixing the problem that happened within the first three chapters, the rest of the entirety of this Bible is God fixing the situation that Adam and Eve caused. So they cause this brokenness or this fallenness. So man sins against God. And then God curses man. But God also promises him in the same chapter where God says, hey, you can't stay here. You can't stay in the garden of perfection anymore because you're not perfect. And you can't eat of the true, tree of life because I don't want you to stay broken. And so he rejects them out of the garden of Edom in, in love. And so God curses man, but then he also promises them something. He promises them redemption. And so we see fallenness, and then we see the redemption process begin. And so the redemption process is quite a long one. At first, God allows people to, to live by their own conscience. Decides, let, let's see how they do. Let's let's prove out, man. If you are really good at your core, and so what happens is uh, the world starts to expand, blah, 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 and lots of more people are born, and this kind of stuff. And uh, Adam and Eve have lots of kids and sons and daughters, and, and the world expands, and, and it comes to this this place where all of a sudden there's all these people, but be, by their own conscious conscience, they're not right. They actually turn to evil even though they could know God, and they, they chose not to know God. And so all of human history gets super messed up, and God decides to destroy the world, except he finds one guy named Noah who, um, next slide, yeah, there we go. There's one guy named Noah who's righteous. These are all these people had the chance to do good and to be right and to follow God, and none of them chose it except one guy and his family, his three kids, three sons and their wives, and he and his wife. And we're going to see uh, that, that although all people sin against God, Noah decides not to. And Noah decides to follow God. And so God saves Noah and in the process saves humanity. And so here we see that that red line is continuing our thought that God is working through human history. And so God God saves Noah. He and his son get out of the boat. And then God says, like, okay, uh, get out of the boat and start to have some more babies and fill up the earth again. And, and so they start to do that. Uh, next slide. And they, they, God says, okay, uh, these people, they decide to have a human government. So they build a city, and they're, they're like, oh, yeah, let's build this big government. But then the big government sort of turns against God. The Tower, Tower of Babel is all about people trying to reach God. It's all about people having their own pride and their ability to do things. And God says, well, that's not good. So God separates the, the people. Now, this is a really interesting kind of study. This is a side note a little bit. But when we look at, like, uh, so Noah has three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I know it sounds like Three Stooges, but, uh, you know, Shem and and Curly and woo-woo-woo-woo, for those of you who are older. Um, But uh, he has Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's really interesting after the Tower of Babel, we can watch, like, the so we can track like who's Ham's kids and who's Shem's kids are and then like where they go and what peoples they become. So the Bible records like people groups, like they became the Canaanites, that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting that like a, a one group, uh, uh, his kids travel out and they, they become uh, people who go south towards Africa. So if I'm guessing that, Ham's a, a darker dude, you know, and then so that, that's the darker dude. And the lighter dudes, they like kind of stay together and they stay in the Middle East. And the even lighter dudes, they're like, now we're going up towards Greece and they move that way. And sort of right after the Tower of Babel, we see these tribes splitting up, but they almost split up by... Uh, Skin variation, which is kind of interesting, and I know uh, this is apropos for most of our audience. You're like, well, if you're looking at the details, I don't know if you can see them, but but you won't find where the Asians are. And you're like, dude, and I see Asia Minor, but Asia Minor is like Turkey and and those kind of Iran and those kind of stuff. Uh, and the funny thing about uh, Asians are they're the hardest to track in the Bible. They're the one people group that kind of disappears. We didn't know where. So it looks like. Uh, all of these like sons of, sons of, sons of, we can track most of them. There's a couple of them, two or three of them that just disappear out of the Bible and we never see them again. So this is what I think happens. There's one guy, he's like, yeah, I'm not into this. And he crosses over the mountains and he ends up in Mongolia and he was the Asian guy you know, who walked away from the the rest of the groups. And so uh, there's one bloodline that just a couple of guys that disappear out of the Bible. So it must be one of them who wander over to Mongolia and then create all our good Chinese and Korean and Japanese friends. So I hate to... Destroy you if you didn't know you were all from Mongolia. You know, it's not Korea. You know, isn't the birthplace of the world? Though sometimes it seems that way, right? In Fullerton, it does anyway. Uh, so anyway, so, so, you've been to Fullerton, I see. So that that's a side note. So uh, God, well anyway, God God is uh so he's he's uh filling back the the earth and and so. Uh, human conscience didn't work, government didn't work, and so God calls a guy named Abram, and he blesses him, and he promises him again, and God says, look, I'm gonna bless the whole world through you, Abram, and, and so uh, uh, God gives this promise again, and then God raises up this guy named Moses, and he's gonna give the people a law to follow. That's what we look at the, in the Old Testament. We see the Old Testament law, and God says, here's the standard for perfection. So conscience didn't work, and government didn't work, and, and he gives them the law but it turns out that the law doesn't really work either. People can't attain perfection. And so so God is still working his redemption prob- process. Remember, the problem was sin, third chapter. The rest of the Bible in human history, we see God remedying that, bringing about the redemption. So it's not through your conscience. It's not through government. And it turns out that it's not even through the Old Testament law. God's going to give uh, kings and prophets and judges to help people uh, draw near to God to be an example to the rest of humanity and they end up not doing it. The Old Testament law isn't enough or it's too much. People can't attain that perfection. So God is patient with his rebellious people and you're, you see with a, uh, that King's chart and this chart the, the, God's people go back and forth idols and then back to God and then idols and back to God. And if you've ever read the Old Testament after you're past the first like uh, four books or so, the rest is turning away from God, turning back to God, turning away from God, turning back to God. You're <laughs> like, I've read this over and over and over, and that was what their history was like. The, the Jewish people, they turn away from God and they turn back to God. And God never gave up. He always allowed a remnant. He continued the redemption process, but this wasn't the fulfillment. The law wasn't the end. So God is patient even though the people are rebellious. Still promising deliverance. And then a guy named Jesus is born, Uh, or Joshua. His name is Yeshua. So uh, God's son, Jesus, comes into the earth. So God says, you know what? The government didn't do it. The conscience didn't do it. The law, the set of rules, doesn't do it. I need to do something to fix, finally, this problem of sin. And so I'm going to send my son, and he's going to fix the problem of sin. So Jesus is born, and Jesus teaches that the only way to God is through himself, through his own blood and he says this is going to be a new covenant it's going to be a new agreement you see the old agreements didn't work they didn't get people near to god they didn't get people into heaven they didn't get people righteous and so jesus comes and say you know what here's the new agreement and this is the way to get to heaven the new agreement is an agreement through my blood and that's what we celebrate when we take communion so jesus dies to restore our relationship to god And so this is the restoration process. It began when Jesus died on the cross. And it finishes when I talked about last week, God completes this perfect kind of world. And we get to this picture where God is eventually judging all things and restoring perfection, our last picture, James. And then so we see this restoration process of it being broken and cracked and damaged and becoming beautiful and amazing. And so God ultimately restores all things. And so as we look through human history, we see God's fingerprints all over. You read the Bible, the Bible is all about God. You say, well, what about an actual history, like not Bible history? You look through the, the, the if, you, if you look through human history, you will see God all throughout it. You'll see the, the kingdom of God expanding from a group of 12 guys to being the largest religion in the world. I was looking at some cool statistics. Do you know that, uh, I don't know why this seems cool to me, that there are more non, there are more people in China today worshiping on a Sunday than there are people in America worshiping on a Sunday. Isn't that a cool statistic? There are more people that are Christians south in the southern hemisphere than there are in the northern hemisphere in case we're tempted to think that this is just a European religion or something. That the greatest area of growth are in Africa and Latin America and in China, and in India. So this is some fantastic stuff. You look in human history, you see God's movement and His church's movement, and the church is expanding. Sometimes people say, well, the church is actually contracting, only by denomination name. Christianity is the number one religion in people converting over to. So there are more converts to Christianity every single year than there are to any other religion. There aren't many people that are Christian that say, you know what, I'm going to become a Buddhist now. There aren't many pi- cr- Christians who say, I'm going to become a Hindu now, or I'm going to become uh, a Muslim now. Occasionally. But far, like uh, the, the, the numbers are far ahead of like, Muslims who turn to Christ and become Christians. Or Hindus become Christians, or Buddhists become Christians. Now if you look at some of the statistics, it'll say that Muslims are the largest growing religion, but that's only by birth. That's because uh, they're having more those who are practicing that religion are having more babies than other people are, but not by conversion. So we can see God's fingerprints all throughout human history. And as God works in human history, he's constantly balancing between being present enough to demonstrate his existence, but not so much that makes it impossible to reject him. See, God God has to walk this really fine line of coercion. See, so we should be able to see God's fingerprints, but it can't be overwhelmingly obvious. Otherwise, it's called coercion, right? Why doesn't God simply come down, tear open the sky, and put a huge face in the sky? Right now, like our building tears open, and the entire sky is dominated by God's face, and he says, worship me, or you die. What are we all going to do? I worship you, huge face, right? And if he wants to demonstrate it, boom, all of Russia is now dead. And we watch it on satellite TV, right? Okay, we worship you. We worship you. We love you. We love you. We love you, God. You're it. Yeah. But what we call that is coercion. We do it with our kids all the time, right? One of your kids does sins against your other kid or does something bad. What do we say? Hey, Andrew, say sorry to your brother. Sorry. He totally means it right? Absolutely. That was heartfelt. It was from the depths of his soul. And he was sorrowful, repentant. Or was he coerced? (laughs) He absolutely was coerced. I'm under no illusion that he wasn't. I'm teaching him a good habit. (laughs) So if God rips open the sky, smashes all of Russia and says, "Now worship me. What are you going to (laughs) do? Okay, I worship you. Are you really choosing that or is that coercion? Right? We can ask uh, Charles about coercion. I think the police do that all the time, right? What's your confession? Uh, You can't tell any details, but, like, I'm sure they, you know, not that our police department has ever coerced anyone into a confession. I'm sure they didn't. Always perfect and, you know, right? So we don't understand coercion. That that wouldn't be admissible in a court of law if someone confessed to a crime under, under duress. It wouldn't be allowed. And so God walks this fine line in human history. He's got to show up enough that you could say, like, I want to turn to you, God. I, I see you. I see your fingerprints. And I want to give my heart over to you. He's got to show up enough that we could do that. But he can't show up so much that it's, like, impossible to say no because then that's just coercion. And so God walks this fine line. And, 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 and humanity is complicated. And history is complicated. And to see God weave this fine line where you can see him in all places. You can see him even in tragedies. You can see him even in the Holocaust. And he's walking that line. And yet he doesn't overwhelm people so that they are forced to choose him and don't have any other option. God works through history recorded in Scripture to point to the Savior, Jesus Christ, God sending his son to save us. God pursuing us. God loving us. See, it's about God fixing the problem that we ourselves caused, Adam and Eve, all the way to the beginning. It's all about God fixing that problem, but isn't that what fathers do? Fix the problems that their children generate? Which brings us to our second area of history in God's work. And this one's a bit more personal because it's the history of God in my life, and the history of God in your life. Anyone who has asked Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior will personally testify to the awesomeness of God. You know, the thing that brings me to tears the most often in life is when I hear someone's salvation story. When I hear them share how they met Jesus and how everything changed. How, how they had been rebellious or they had been this or they had been that. Or maybe they had grown up in the church and they had heard it, they heard it, they heard it, and it was their parents' religion, and they'd talk about the time when they finally said, you know what, it's not my parents' religion, it's my relationship with Jesus. And when I hear those kind of stories, that, like, that thing gets me to cry almost always. Because I think that it's so powerful and it's so important. Look, everyone has a story that's worth telling and is worth listening to. Everyone has a faith journey that's worth expressing when we look back on our lives we can see the fingerprints of god throughout our life like sometimes in the moment we don't realize or recognize that god's at work or we don't realize that he's moving in our life and it takes a bit of distance sometimes from the immediate things that are happening it takes a bit of reflection to look back and to see that god was in fact working and he's powerfully moving in our own personal histories. Uh, Hannah and Mark Villasenor, they're in the process of developing, developing this podcast that's going to help JRC share your stories. It's going to help Jericho Road share their, their faith journeys. And I'm super looking forward to it. They're just going to have just quick interviews, a little bit small, small thing, where you can tell your personal story about how God has been working in your life. Like the individual history of each believer, it shows this remarkable parallel to the Bible. It's going to mirror fallenness, redemption, and restoration. And we see it in the New Testament writing. It comes from Ephesians. Check this out. The same process of fallenness, redemption, and perfection. Paul says, like, you guys, you were all dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked before following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Fallenness. We were all there. But God... But God, but God in his rich mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, like even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. Redemption. And then God raises us up with him and he seats us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus' perfection. See, we were fallen and God redeems us personally internally and each of our faith journeys says that and then God will perfect us and that the cool part about that last verse is it says, like, not only will he perfect us, but, but he has, like, these immeasurable riches waiting for us. He's like, oh, kids, I got something really cool for you. Come on up. He says, it's waiting for you. And the, the only reason I have it is just to show my kindness. But I was telling you, like, God's got something really, like, you can't even get it right now. You've got to wait for a minute. And then when you get it, he's like, God's like, dude, I got something totally for you. I can't wait till you get up here so I can show my kindness to you. It's going to be immeasurable. You're not going to, it's going to like blow you away. It's better than a new pony, I promise. It's a unicorn. <laughs> I don't know. So we've each tried doing it on our own, and we weren't doing a very good job of it. Then something stirred within our souls, within us, like an uneasiness that we couldn't explain, and our hearts began to search for the something more to the answers to that uneasiness and we discovered the love and the goodness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we decided to follow him. For some of us, this process took years and years, and for others, it was just a moment. When we look at God's work in our personal history and the history of those people around us, our wonder can be restored. if you look at how God saved like different people and how he saved them and the circumstances which came about and the miracles that had to happen for that to happen like your awe and your wonder will be restored I'm in awe that God would love me that God would care for me that he would die for me even now 27 years after I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior like I look back at the time I'm like God why would you want me I was just like such a loser, punk. I wasn't even like a cool loser. I was like a bad loser. I wasn't even like a bad guy, gangster, tough. I was a, a weasel, slimy, yucky one. I wasn't even like, I didn't have prison tattoos. I had like, eh, stab in the back tattoo. I didn't have, I didn't tattoo, like none of that. Like I was just nasty. I wasn't even cool. I wasn't, there, there was no good. It wasn't like a good testimony story. It was like, you're just a loser. And I look back at that and God said, I love you. And I've got something really cool for you. And I'm, I'm again, found myself in awe. God saves people from drugs. God saves people that are depraved or lost or depressed. He saves those who are not, and he gives them a new birth and a new name and a new family and a new purpose and a new hope. We can look around this room and we can recognize God's wondrous work in the lives of people right here. Amen? We can look into our own faith journey and return to a place of awe because of the kindness and the love of God. I'm going to ask that you guys would just stand with me and we're going to end with worship today. And we're just going to end just thinking about this. Like, God, you've been in human history. We see you in the Bible. We see you working in our own lives. As a personal testimony to you, we can just shout out, God, you are amazing. And so church, would you all stand with me as we respond to God with worship that he alone deserves as the God of history? God, would you, over all things, we declare that you and you alone are worthy of our all respect, honor, and wonder. God, we see your handiwork in creation, and we are in awe of your working in history. And we're blown away by your work in our own lives, and our own histories, and we want to thank you, and we want to worship you, and we're going to give you these next few moments, God.